Hello, and welcome to episode 47 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I am Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing okay, staying at home and trying to watch stuff and go out to teach once a week, but staying inside as much as I can. You too? Yes, very much so. Trying to get motivation to watch the movies that are going to be Oscar nominees, but very much failing to do so. So we're going to have another episode of looking backwards and just talking and looking forwards a little bit, talking about some movie news because we haven't exactly been watching the new releases recently. Maybe eventually we'll get around to reviewing Nomadland and Judas the Black Messiah, but not today. We've got some The, uh, the issue we news. have is that we would really go see these movies in theaters, but yes. because we'll talk about this it's partially you can talk about it with the scorsese article yes uh, where he writes about fellini but he talks about the streaming services it's like there's this glut of content like if something's on these streaming services it's like this void of content and it's like <laughs> if something you actually had to leave the house to go to a movie theater to see it i would go see it but because you can just watch it anytime and there's hundreds of movies it's like, eh, I'll get to it sometime. <laughs> it's paralysis by choice. <laughs> right. So we've got some news to run down about casting, uh, directors taking on new projects. Do you want to get us started, Jonathan? Yes. Uh, a while back, we did an episode where we went by decade and picked our favorite uh, two directors or so from each decade when they had their premiere. And one of my favorite directors uh, that's working today of the generation that's kind of Quentin Tarantino, David O. Russell, uh, Christopher Nolan, Darren Aronofsky, David Fincher is Kelly Rydark, who uh, had one of the best reviewed films of her career last year with her film First Cow. Um, and she is reteaming with the actress Michelle Williams for a film called Showing Up. This will be their fourth collaboration. They've been in films together, Meek's Cut Off, Certain Women, and probably my favorite, Wendy and Lucy. <laughs> and this will be another film for A24. She did her film First Cow with that wonderful studio. And it's scheduled to go into production this summer. And the article that talked about it said, Rydark's latest film is a vibrant and sharply funny portrait of an artist on the verge of a career-changing exhibition. As she navigates family, friends, and colleagues in the lead-up to her show, the chaos of life becomes an inspiration for great art. Hmm. Sounds like a sort of eight-and-a-half kind of deal. Yeah, I um, Michelle Williams is one of my favorite actresses of her generation. I think she makes incredible choices. I mean, she's been in Brokeback Mountain, Manchester by the Sea, Blue Valentine, my favorite film of the century so far, Synecdoche, New York. Venom. And, uh, well, <laughs> and she, well, I mean, even she works with interesting directors, even if the film's not great. Yes. Like I love Sam Raimi. She was in Oz, the great and powerful mm -hmm. with Rachel Weitz, two of my favorite actresses, the film, eh. But um, yeah, I, any Kelly Rydark film, she's one of those directors without question. She has a new film. I want to see it. Don't need to know the premise. Don't need to know who's in it. Only makes me happier that Michelle Williams is in it. Mm -hmm. um, you have not seen one film by Kelly Rydark. No. There's no reason. <laughs> uh, one of my many overlooked contemporary directors says, like, just keep watching movies that are 70 years old. <laughs> yeah, Kelly Rydark is one of those directors that like when I saw First Cow at the New York Film Festival actually in 2019 and 
like three minutes into it, you just relax and you go, oh, you're in the hands of a master. Mm -hmm. She's just in utter command of everything on screen. And she's just, it's like a lot of her films are actually based on short stories and they feel like you're just watching a great little short story unfold. And, um, like Wendy and Lucy is 80 minutes long mm-hmm. and she, there's just, her films are amazing. And first cow is a great place to start, you know, watch your most recent one. They, it's not like you have to go back and watch them in order, but I, I highly recommend Wendy and Lucy first cow, certain women, but really all of her films. Um, I think it's about time. Michelle Williams got a really good role. I feel like she hasn't had something she can really get her teeth into. She's been in, like, I Feel Pretty and Venom, but since 2016 with Manchester by the Sea and Certain Women, so hopefully. Well, she did play Gwen Verdon in that miniseries that got really uh, Oh, Fossey Verdon, yeah. Yeah. I did but, not watch um, that. <laughs> I didn't either. I need to catch up with the Bob Fossey films because uh, he only directed five, mm-hmm. and then I can watch that, I feel. I got to do my homework. Mm-hmm. Um, but – Another bit of interesting uh, news with director is that Noah Baumbach, uh, a couple of things, he is going to adapt a Don DeLillo novel titled White Noise. It's going to star Adam Driver, who's been in a number of his films, most mm-hmm. recently his most recent film, Marriage Story, mm-hmm. and his partner in real life, Greta Gerwig. And it also was announced that he has signed an exclusive deal with Netflix uh, Bombach said, quote, when I started in the film industry, I dreamed of having a home. It took me about 25 years, but it was worth the wait. I couldn't be more thrilled to be making movies with Ted and Scott and everyone at Netflix who are wonderful collaborators and friends and family. So he did his film, The Meyerowitz Stories, New and Selected, mm-hmm. and then Marriage Story. So his last two films have been done with Netflix. And Marriage and Story was a huge success, nominated for a bunch of <clears throat> yeah. Oscars nominated for lead and lead both lead acting oscars and mm-hmm. Laura Dern won and yeah he is what's interesting to me is that netflix you may say that they're helping destroy brick and mortar cinemas but they're the ones giving people like spike lee and charlie kaufman and martin scorsese and noah mm-hmm. bombach like real auteurs and great filmmakers the artistic freedom and the budgets they need to make films so i uh, i'm very happy that uh, in a way that he's has an outlet to make these films. Mm-hmm. I don't know if his Barbie film is going to be part of that Netflix deal or whether that's a separate film, but he is making a film. It's been announced for a while. Noah Baumbach is directing. He and his partner Greta Gerwig are writing, and Margot Rob- Robbie is starring in a Barbie, as in the Barbie doll. <laughs> I know. I'm wondering what the plot is going to be. <laughs> right. It makes me think of the Saturday Night Live skits where the people walk around with their arms like uh-huh. stretched out, you know, <laughs> like they're big Barbie dolls. Who knows? Um, I think Netflix I is ser- an interesting uh, streaming service because they have been really good about putting, putting their movies in theaters, which we have yet to see how Apple Plus and Hulu and people like that are going to handle that. And also they've got the partnership with the Criterion Collection, so you can actually get them in physical media if they deem them worthy of being on physical media. So. I, I think that's a good fit for Noah Baumbach, but I think uh, did Scorsese sign an exclusive deal with Apple Plus, or are they just releasing his next movie? You... I don't know that he's signed an exclusive deal, but he's making Killers of the Flower Moon with them. Apple, um, whatever it's called, Apple Plus, Apple Film. <laughs> I don't have it. Do you? Uh, I don't know. I think it's one of those ones you get for free for a year, and I don't know if I canceled it. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I, I there's things that you don't even know if you have them. It's like, oh, do I have that? <laughs> um, it's also like with this is really old school. A lot of people don't even have cable anymore. But there's, you know, you have a thousand billion channels, but you only watch like twelve ever. And then on half of those twelve, you watch one show on a channel. Mm-hmm. But um, okay, let me go to a next, probably the most exciting bit of casting news. One of my top ten living directors is David Cronenberg. And Viggo Mortensen, who has starred in three of his films, uh, has been going around promoting his directorial debut, Falling, which has Cronenberg in a supporting role as a doctor. <laughs> and Morgan's, uh, uh, Viggo Mortensen has been talking about that Cronenberg will be coming back and doing a new film. And he hasn't done a film in about seven or eight years. His last film was Maps to the Stars. Oh, okay. Julianne and, Moore? Uh, yeah, really. I, re- I mean, people kind of were like, uh. Some critics were not great. It, Julianne Moore won Best Actress at Cannes. Mm-hmm. Um, Wasn't but, Cosmopolis uh, is, around that time, too, with yeah. Robert Pattinson? Which connects to the previous article because that was an adaptation of a Don DeLillo novel. Oh. So it's the same author. Um, but Mortensen said in an interview about the prospect of a new Cronenberg film, he said, quote, it's something he wrote a long time ago and he never got it made. Now he's refined it and he wants to shoot it. Hopefully it'll be the summer we'll be filming. I would say without giving the story away, he's going maybe a little bit back to his origins. And uh, when the interviewer asked him about the possibility of it being uh, a body horror film, he said, yeah, it's very interesting. It's almost like a strange film noir story. It's disturbing and it's good, I think. But since his origins, he's obviously developed in terms of technique and self-assurance as a director. So, you know, I don't want to do, know too much about it. I just want uh-huh. to see it. But I'm very excited that Cronenberg, uh, since he's one of my favorite directors, is coming back. You know, once it comes out, you know, if it you know, probably won't come out until 2022, uh-huh. you know, it will be almost a whole decade since we've had a Cronenberg film feature. So very excited about that. He was also saying some stuff about like how the Academy didn't respect Cronenberg or something like that, right? Yeah, he's never been nominated for an Oscar for Best Director or Screenplay, and that's is that seems ridiculous. crazy because he was really hot for a minute in the two thousands with uh, History of Violence and Eastern Promises. So to think that he didn't get nominated for either of those is a bit crazy because those yeah, were both Vigo extremely Mar- well reviewed and like very much were in the popular consciousness, which you know Cosmopolis and Master of the Stars very much were not. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Mortensen was nominated for Eastern Promises for Best Actor, but he should have been nominated for Best Actor for also History of Violence, uh-huh. the pr- first film they did together. And Maria Bello should have been nominated for Best Actor. I think it's John Hurt was supporting actor for that. Yeah. Yeah. He's in the movie like seven minutes and great. Or William Hurt. Like, you're not going to nominate. I can never remember his name. The one that's still alive. The one <laughs> yes. from broadcast news. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm always super excited. Interesting, Cronenberg's been doing more acting recently. He's been on the new Star Trek TV series as an actor. <laughs> and like I said, he's in uh, Mortensen's directorial debut, Falling, playing a proctologist, I think. Um, <laughs> but uh, wh- why don't you tell us some more directing news of interest? Yes, Chloe Zhao, whose movie Nomadland was just released uh, on Hulu on Friday, which is supposed to be the best-reviewed movie of the year. She's also got a Marvel movie coming out later this year, Immortals. And what was the name of the her breakout a couple years ago? Was it Lean on Pete? The Rider. The Rider, that's it. Lean on Pete was a different horse movie. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I 
But she, uh, this is a great headline. Director Chloe Zhao sinks teeth into sci-fi western Dracula for Universal. So uh, we'll see if that's going to be like a straight-up adaptation of the Bram Stoker novel. But vampires may be back <laughs> like they were 15 years ago. <laughs> well, I don't think it's going to be straight up if it's a western. Well, yeah, that's very much true. But, I mean, sci-fi western, they need to stick to the source material at least a little bit. Maybe there will be somebody going to a castle out in the middle of nowhere and like, hey, who lives here? But uh, Well, what's interesting is that I've only seen so far the writer. Mm-hmm. And like that uh, Nomadland, the two films... She makes films where they have a lot of real people basically playing themselves, but it's not really a documentary. She Mm -hmm. has uh, people playing characters with their own name, and they're living the life that they do in real life, but she creates these fictional films around them. And with Nomadland, it's Frances McDormand in the lead, but a lot of the people around her are just real people. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting, the idea of her making a Marvel movie and then a sci-fi. Yeah, the Marvel movie has got me really intrigued. I mean, is she just going to like start making not necessarily blockbusters, but more mainstream sort of movies? Um, well, mean, there is part of. I always have this push and pull. It's like if you're going to make these big blockbuster comic book movies, franchise movies, Star Wars, it's like I want people like Chloe Zhao mm-hmm. and Barry Jenkins and David Fincher and Guillermo del Toro and Edgar Wright to make them mm-hmm. because I want them to be good. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, like David Fincher didn't make a film for like seven or eight years. And there was a while where he was going to direct the World War Z sequel. Mm-hmm. And the other part of me is like, I don't want a director at the height of his creativity and his power to waste three or four years of his life making World War Z 2. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what's worse like, is I, when I, Edgar Wright uses three or four years of his life to make Ant-Man. And he doesn't even get to make Ant-Man. It's stuff like that that's very yeah. frustrating. And it also makes me worried and sad that Barry Jenkins is doing the live action sequel to The Lion King and that Ryan Coogler signed an exclusive deal with Disney, which I have really He's making the Black Panther years. TV show, I think. Or at yeah, least the I mean, Wakanda I just TV think show. that Disney... Yeah, D- Disney's just an evil corporation that's ruining culture and takes up way too much oxygen. <laughs> yes. I, I really think they're evil. Um, but I don't know. I, I It's like I, I like that they have these opportunities, but at the same time, it's like, why is Barry Jenkins doing a live-action Lion King sequel? He's, he's trying to get paid. <laughs> I know. It's just like, I, I know that Frances McDormand was in one of the Transformer sequels, but you know, yes. after that, she did like, for really indie movies it's like that's that's what you got to do you don't mm-hmm. just keep on making transformer films you have to go make the film with paulo sorrento you know the one with sean penn and then mm-hmm. you make wes anderson movies and you make nomadland mm-hmm. but one yeah. for them three anyway, for I, me yeah but I'm, <laughs> I'm i mean from what i've heard the marvel film that chloe Zhao is doing that's got a ridiculous cast really, yeah but that she's been given like you know, as much creative freedom as you can in, in the, the Marvel, Marvel project. Machine. Yeah. Which so, is something they've been I'm, hesitant I'm to give excited. directors before, but I think since the whole, uh, infinity saga, as they like to call it with Endgame, uh, is over and their baby is proved to be <laughs> billion dollar movie after billion dollar movie that maybe they'll give a little more control to filmmakers like Chloe Zhao that they were not willing to give filmmakers like Edgar Wright in the previous, era of the marvel cinematic universe but to mention edgar wright 
he is announced his next project, which we we're all waiting for last night in Soho, which was supposed to come out in 2020, like a lot of other movies, <laughs> but we have yet to see it. He uh, was announced to direct a adaptation of Stephen King's The Running Man at Paramount Pictures. Uh, it was already loosely made, or a, a version of the novel was made in 1987, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's sort of a loose adaptation of the novel. This one apparently is going to be much more faithful to the Stephen King original. And it is co-written with Michael Bacall, who I'm right, am I right, was an actor in Inglorious Bastards? I'm not sure. I think he played one of the Bastards, <laughs> if I'm not incorrect. But I was just thinking, before we started recording, Edgar Wright is a director. I would like to see him make a lot more movies, because what has he made, like six movies in 16, well, 17 I gonna, years? I was going to say, we actually have two films of his coming out, because he has... Oh, Sparks, Sparks Brothers, Brothers, yes, the documentary. documentary. Yeah. Yeah, Look so at, he showing my his... bias against documentaries there. <laughs> I know. So he had uh, a film that nobody's seen. He had Shot of the Dead is not his first film. Almost a decade earlier, he had one called A Fistful of Fingers, which he shot uh, when he was really young. Extremely There's low the budget. the Cornetto trilogy, <laughs> Scott Pilgrim, Baby Driver. So he's done, you know, in like 25 years, he's only done like seven films or so. And all ones that he's um, written, but... right? I think so. And I know that with um, Last Night in Soho, which is really interesting, he's making like a full out horror film. Uh -huh. That's like, as far as I know, not a comedy. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, all of his films have been comedies of some sort, yes. you know, mixing it with other genres, you know, Shaun of the Dead being a horror film, Baby Driver and Hot Fuzz being action films. But yes. I'm very excited him make it looks like a giallo Italian Dario Argento <laughs> horror film, <laughs> yes. you know. But I'm excited about this one. Edgar Wright is a director who I'd like to have him start directing other people's scripts because he has a really interesting visual style. And I feel like he could make a lot more movies if he wasn't so concerned with being a writer director for all of them. But, you know, if that's what he wants to do, more freedom to him. But I just want right. him to make more movies because he's a really, really talented director. And we hardly ever right. see any of his output. Yeah, Baby Driver was like five years ago. Something like that. Yeah. So um, let me go in. Uh, so do you have some more? Uh, oh, we got one news? one more director yeah. slash casting news with A24, who's just the powerhouse <laughs> art film studio. Um, Ari Aster, who is everything he's made has been with A24 so far, I think. Yeah. Um, is going to make a or it was announced his next movie is going to be titled Disappointment Boulevard and will star Joaquin Phoenix. Um, we do not know when it is going to come out. We do not know when it's going to go to production. We don't really know anything about the plot, but that is a very exciting combination of actor and director because Ari Aster, Midsummer was his, uh, his latest one. And he's very much a up and coming horror director. It's also hereditary was his big break. Right. 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 And it is not known if this new film will be a horror film. It's been mm -hmm. very under wraps what this movie is going to be. There was an announcement. I don't know if it's going to be this film that he has uh, written a four hour nightmare comedy. Um, I don't know if that's going to be this film. <laughs> is the experience supposed to be a nightmare having to sit through it for four hours? <laughs> I don't know. But um, I'm, uh, yeah, uh, Hereditary Midsommar was a one two punch because one came out and then the one came out just the uh, very next it was year. Eight, 2018, COVID 2019, kinda. right? Right. Uh, so, yeah, I'm certainly excited about that. Um, so, I'm going to go to a little bit of casting. Also, we haven't seen anything I... from uh, Phoenix since Joker, right? 
He hasn't been in the movie he, since then. Yeah. He's going to be in a film by the man who directed Beginners and 20th Century Women. Um, oh, Mike Mills. It's shot yet. Yeah. Um, I'm excited about that. Um, he has not but, made a movie uh, since 20th Century Women, right? <laughs> Which has yeah, been, I guess not. Six or seven years. Maybe not seven yeah. years. Maybe closer to I saw years. it in. Yeah, I saw it at the New York Film Festival, so it has to be like five or years or so, mm-hmm. at least. Okay, some interesting casting news. So Todd Haynes, who has written uh, and directed a number of music biopics before, interestingly, we talked about uh, Barbie. He did a uh, biopic of Karen Carpenter with Barbie dolls, which is not legally available to watch because he didn't get the rights for the music. He also did Velvet Goldmine. Which mm-hmm. is kind of a fictitious, you know, it's obviously David Bowie, based on Iggy Pop sort of thing, right? right. <clears throat> and then he did "I'm Not There," mm-hmm. which is uh, a Bob Dylan biopic that's very interesting because it has six different people playing Dylan, <laughs> including uh, a woman. <laughs> yeah, Kate Blanchett, Richard Gere, Christian Bale, uh-huh. and Heath Ledger. Anyway, he has for many years had a Peggy Lee biopic. Uh, and it has been announced that Michelle Williams is going to be playing Peggy Lee and that it's going to be titled Fever and MGM is oh. in talks to acquire it in the uh, musical artist Billie Eilish is in early discussions to be an executive producer on it. <laughs> so um, Todd Haynes is uh, a wonderful director. Um, he has not made a film in a few years, even though uh, another documentary, a music one, he has one. Um, about the what's the famous one with the banana on the cover? What's the oh, Velvet Underground um, and Nico, Velvet Underground, right? Right, right. I'm not as intelligent about music as some <laughs> people are, but I knew it was the banana cover. Uh-huh. Um, Andy Warhol uh, is on that cover. That's supposed to be coming out on Apple, I think. It's it's going to come out this year about but, the making uh, of also, that album. Well, about the band in general. Oh, that's very exciting. I had no idea. Yeah, big, um, big fan but, of. Velvet Underground here. Right. Well, I'm a big fan of Todd Haynes and Michelle Williams, <laughs> uh, so I'm certainly looking forward to uh, see what he's going to be doing with Peggy Lee. I think most people know her from having music. I mean, this may be stupid. I don't know music, but she's the one that did music in the Lady Lady and the Tramp, right? Probably. I don't know. I'm not. I don't. Peggy Lee is not very much in the popular contest these days. <laughs> right. Right. Well. Um, that was one thing that, uh, I know, I mean, that, that was interesting to me. Okay. What are some other cast? What's up? Some other casting news? Well, Barry Levinson, uh, the maker of diner and other very witty movies, uh, is going to make Wait, a man. Godfather, uh, motion picture about the making of Godfather. And Elizabeth Moss was added to the cast that already includes Oscar Isaac playing, uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Jake Gyllenhaal playing uh robert evans so we, we were talking before that we had heard that there was going to be a making of godfather tv show also that at one point involved army hammer so this might be one of those uh armageddon deep impact situations where we get like three different godfather making of movies but this one sounds really interesting uh jake gyllenhaal should be a really good robert evans and uh, Elizabeth Moss is cast as Francis Ford Coppola's wife, Eleanor Coppola. She most recently appeared in Invisible Man, which was like the last movie to get a theatrical release before the, <laughs> the lockdown, pretty much. Um, but been been a big fan of Elizabeth Moss since uh, Mad Men. So exciting to see her uh, get some more opportunities in movies because she really is a great actor. Um, oh, yeah. One of the best parts um, of Us, like by far, 
the second Jordan Peele movie. She was outstanding in that. Right. Um, yeah, Elizabeth Moss makes really good uh, casting choices. You're a big uh, fan of her yeah, smell, she, right? Well, she was – oh, she's been in so many. She was in uh, The Old Man and the Gun, and she was in a movie called Shirley last year, which uh, also got good reviews along with The Invisible Man. She's been in – oh, you know, she's worked with a lot of interesting – she was in Top of the Lake, the uh, mm-hmm. Jane Campion series. Um, also, I just want to point out that she's uh, playing Eleanor Coppola, and she is the uh, – you mentioned that, but she's the one who shot the documentary footage for Heart of Darkness, the documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now, one of the greatest making of documentaries about the making and the craziness that went on in the production of Apocalypse Now. It's the one where Martin and, Sheen has a heart attack and has to crawl back <laughs> – miles yeah. to get back to <laughs> medical care <laughs> right so uh that should be interesting to see uh a film about the making it, it feels weird that in a way like these people like pacino and uh you know james con the uh, robert duvall diane keaton all these actors are still alive francis ford coppola is still alive i know and but the godfather is going to be 50 years old next year that's kind of crazy like we think of I know it's uh, you, you think in a way like, oh, this is too. I don't know. In my mind, it's almost like it's weird. Like you can imagine like, you know, you know, line, you know, like the old actors from the 20s and 30s. Like, oh, we can have people playing them now. But like having people play, you know, Diane Pacino, and Al Pacino <laughs> it's like they're still alive. And it's yeah. like we know what they look like. They, it, yeah. So I, I'm certainly excited about that. That uh, should be interesting. To I didn't see even about think about production. somebody playing Al Pacino until just now. That will be bizarre. <laughs> I know. What would be amazing is getting him to play himself with the DH. Oh, DH. Irishman. Yeah. Yeah. Well, only I can but, play uh, me. He's just going to do it in this right. super over-the-top manner now. <laughs> right. I'll well, make you an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'd rather see him do that than Jack and Jill, or, yes. you know, one of his direct. It's like you create. You look at these people and like they have their IMDb pages and like they have these movies that like when did this get made or released? Like it's looking like a direct to VOD release, mm-hmm. and it's like these like like a movie will have like uh, um, oh, what's the guys? I mean, it's like they'll just have random actors and then, and then Al Pacino's in. It. It's like De Niro when did this is movie... definitely good for that. He's like in the Intern. <laughs> kind of stuff like that yeah well interesting though mark maron has talked about how that's like one of de niro's best performances in like 20 years he says that people really? like don't yeah he says that that's like one of his few like only because he phones like, in so many yeah but um <laughs> like dirty anyway, grandpa uh, what's another bit of <laughs> i mean i mean what's sad is that like on metacritic I, this is sad i know this but he's done like 35 or 40 movies in the last like 17 years and machete is like the fifth highest rated one <laughs> that really says really, a lot <laughs> really i mean i mean that movie's fun like i don't i'm not bashing that movie but it's like the fourth highest rated one is one point higher it's the film he also directed the good shepherd the mm-hmm. one about the cia with matt damon and angelina jolie and then like it's like silver Linings playbook it's like uh one point lower yeah than machete um yeah it's just really depressing you know you think like why would they you know it's like i would rather someone do like gene hackman and just retire or like do you know like um you know you know there's actors that like leonardo DiCaprio, like he'll go four years without making a movie he's like i'm gonna wait and do what i want to do 
I think you can like pinpoint it like the instant he appeared in Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle, and all started going downhill. Yeah. <laughs> Since then, but, it's been uh, like Men of Honor, the score, Showtime. <laughs> yeah. Not a lot of wins. Uh, uh, the War with Grandpa is one of the films uh-huh. that's been in theaters forever. Uh, but yeah, speaking of Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh yeah, his next movie, uh, Martin Scorsese's next movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, just announced Jesse Plemons, who has been on a hot streak only to be rivaled by Adam Driver, probably, uh, is going to replace uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who is still going to be in the movie, but in a different role as the lead in Killers of the Flower Moon. This is uh, one that Scorsese's wanted to make for a really long time. I'm sure we've talked about it before on this podcast. It was your most anticipated movie of this year, although we very much don't expect it to be released this year. Um, and it also added Lily Gladstone to the cast, who uh, has appeared in a couple of Kelly Reidark movies, right? Yes, she was uh, wonderful and should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Certain Women, and she was in her most recent film, First Cow. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is this will be the first film that has Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro in a Scorsese film. They've both been in multiple, like, at least you know six films, I think, each of them. But this will be the first time they're both in a Scorsese film. His two great muses, finally, in the same movie. Right. And it's interesting, the idea of him doing a Western, which he's never done, you know, mm-hmm. the very urban New York uh, Scorsese, even though obviously if anyone's heard him talk about movies, he's a huge fan of every type of movie. He mm-hmm. loves Westerns. So I know he loves Duel in the Sun. That's one of his favorite movies. Right. Gregory so, um, yeah, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm hoping this movie actually gets shot when it's planning to in that I, it, the film should be finished shooting by the end of the year. Yeah. It's supposed to start like... A couple weeks from now, I think, or right. like imminently, he uh, posted yeah. a picture on his Instagram of like locations shooting, and I was just like, "Oh, he's back! <laughs> he's back!" Scorsese's he's back. Yeah, I think that this might be as long or longer than the Irishman because he's doing it with this one for Apple TV Plus, so mm-hmm. he can they'll let him do whatever he wants. So we'll see if this one's going to be like an epic. Well, when when's the last three, like short movie he made? Silence was really oh. long. <laughs> so here's a trivia question. What's the last film Scorsese did that's under two hours? I know the answer. I'm sure it's not Hugo. No, the la- Okay, the last narrative film he did that's under two hours is The Color of Money. Wow. Which is an hour and 59 minutes. And that's almost 30 years ago. Almost like, like 1985. Yeah, over 30 years ago, yeah. That, um, oh, yeah, and that is well, over 30 I mean, years. I'm not counting New York stories that where he did the segment of that. Yeah, you but, can't count um, that. No, although but it's a really anyway, good segment. Yeah. That's one with Nick Nolte, where uh, yeah, that's really he's good. the painter. Yeah. Whiter shade of pale. That's right. <laughs> what right. I remember from that. Well, well, since we're talking about Scorsese, let's talk a little bit about the article he wrote in Harper's about a lot of it's about Federico Fellini, but mm-hmm. he's also talking. About, why don't you introduce it? What's the title of the article and kind of sum up? And uh, maybe the title is it. "Il Maestro: Federico Fellini and the Lost Magic of Cinema." Um, it was. Probably half about Fellini, a quarter about just like watching movies in New York in the 60s, and then a quarter about hating the current state of media. Would you say that's fair? Um, I don't know hating as much as being Being concerned, concerned, yes, disliking. Because he mentions, and he has been a a beneficiary of this, because I don't think The Irishman would have been made if it wasn't for Netflix and their endless amount of money. But... Uh, at the beginning, he just sort of introduces 
It's kind of cool. It starts off like exterior, 8th Street, late afternoon, 1959, camera in nonstop motion. So he sort of presents it like it's a screenplay. And he's just like walking by all these theater marquees and seeing John Cassavetti's Shadows, Claude Chabral's Les Cousines, Hiroshima, Mon Amour, Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, Ashes and Diamonds, Kettle of Fish, La Dolce Vita, and just all these incredible movies and just how vibrant the cinema industry was and how interested people were in seeing foreign movies and seeing them in theaters and just sort of compare that to today where there is not nearly as much interest in foreign cinema but also you know we don't exactly have the names like we did like Bergman and Fellini and Tarkovsky and that sort of thing um and Zack Snyder (laughs) Zack Snyder exactly (laughs) four-hour cut of, of Justice League um and he really gets on his frustration with the term content and it's sort of reducing the art of cinema to its lowest common denominator that it's basically on the same level as a, he says in it, a cat video, a Super Bowl commercial, a David Lean movie, a superhero sequel, a series episode. These are all just how business people talk about uh, moving images. It's all just content for them. And uh, how sort of algorithms dictate the way we view media these days. And he's just very upset about uh, the way he's a big fan of curating. He mentions he likes TCM and the Criterion channel because it's, uh, and that people sometimes think of curating as being elitist or undemocratic, that you're not necessarily giving a fair shake to some movies or others, but um, these streaming services do the same things. They use algorithms to sort of dictate what, pops in front of you when you go on netflix or amazon prime so it's hardly any different in that he'd prefer it to be curated and you being presented really good movies that maybe you haven't heard of and not staying in your comfort zone with the algorithm where netflix just keeps pumping bridgerton in five seconds (laughs) episode one of bridgerton in five seconds and that sort of thing There was a three-hour interview that Edgar Wright did with Quentin Tarantino um, because Edgar Wright was the guest uh, curator of an uh, magazine. Empire uh, Magazine. Empire Magazine. And they talked a lot of different things in this article. They talked about their favorite theatrical experiences. They went through a list that Scorsese wrote right about his uh, 50 British films, and they take up a lot of the episode talking about that. <clears throat> but they Extremely obscure about... British films. <laughs> I hadn't heard of like right. any of them. Well, they, uh, Scorsese pointed out that, like, I'm going to assume people have seen Lawrence of Arabia yeah. and The Red Shoes and uh, the Hitchcock. The Lady Killers, ones. stuff like that. Right. And so um, the w- one thing that's interesting, and this irritates me too, uh, Edgar Wright was saying he was watching Omnis Varda's film Cleo from five to seven, and it was on a streaming service. And there's no end credits in that film. It just is a close up of her face and it fades to black. And like in the last 10 seconds of the film, this little box came up in the right hand corner. I was like, you want to watch this next? He's like, no, I want to watch the end of this movie. Shoot. You know, and that's so irritating yeah. when, you know, it's like you have to jump to your remote to like, no, I want to watch the end credits. I want to watch the end credits. I mean, well, and it's just movies. using the movie as like a means to keep you on their service. It's not has no respect for the movie itself. Right. And I've said this before, and it's only gotten worse in year, recent years. Netflix has virtually no films that came out before this century. Uh-huh. I mean, well, dude, now you, they just keep having less because like Paramount is coming out with their services. So when they would have previously had Paramount movies or 
Um, Warner Brothers does HBO Max, so the Warner Brothers catalog would have been available for Netflix. Now all of those are going to be on their own streaming services, so if you want to watch a Paramount movie, you'll have to get Paramount+. Plus. If you want to watch a Warner Brothers movie, you'll have to get HBO Max. It's just annoying. I wish there was just one service that had everything. <laughs> if they're, they're going to have services. million dollars a month. <laughs> uh, I just think one of the issues he talks about, too, is that we as audience members, as paying customers, we should insist that these great films be available because there are films that you cannot stream. Mm-hmm. I mean, it comes and goes, but like I've said before, Rebecca, Hitchcock's first American film, his only film to win Best Picture, mm-hmm. at least last time I looked, not streaming legally anywhere. You can't rent it on Amazon Prime or iTunes. It's not on Netflix. It's not on the Criterion Channel. It's on disc in the Criterion Channel. I have the Blu-ray on my shelf there. Mm-hmm. But you think that like every film that won Best Picture would it be available mm-hmm. online to rent? I mean, it's just kind of crazy uh, that there's the other idea. You know, talking about curation. I've said this before that it's like a trip to the moon was on Netflix for a while. That classic silent short that's mm-hmm. over like a hundred and you know hundred ten years old. Georges Méliès. Yeah, and it's like. Right next to it, the thumbnail picture of it could be right next to Orange's New New Black. Like, there's no curation on mm-hmm. Netflix. There's just it's just a glut of content. It's just here it is. <laughs> I know, and it's weird that like Amazon Prime too. One of my favorite, whatever it is, a film, a TV series was Nicholas Winding Refn's Tool to Die Young. Mm-hmm. When it premiered, you had to type it into the search bar. Mm-hmm. It was not on the main menu. I was like. How much money do you think they spent, you know, making this 13-hour series? Oh, millions, tens even, of millions. I know. It's just, it's so bizarre, this business idea of, like, making this giant product, and then you're not even going to put it on the homepage the day it's released. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like they're fun. only producing these movies because they have money to burn, and they don't want to pay taxes. So they really don't care what the movie's like. They just, like, just get it out there, and maybe someone will watch it. But if they don't watch that, they'll watch something else. We don't really care, as long as they stay on our website. Yeah, and it's, it, I mean, I guess the idea is, like, we'll make a Charlie Kaufman film that no one's, not no one, but, you know, compare, it's like, things like The Queen's Gambit, and like for Disney Plus, The Mandalorian, like it will make up so much of, you know, it, they'll make so much money from that that mm-hmm. they can do like a dozen other little things that not a, a, a fraction of the audience of The Mandalorian or The Queen's Gambit. It's like that's what they can do. <clears throat> I mean, that's how the movie business works in general with the giant superhero movies is mm-hmm. that they'll make a billion dollars by making Thor three or Ant-Man five. And then they can make, <clears throat> but the problem I think is that these days they're not even making the little 40 million, 50 million uh, dramas and comedies. Mm-hmm. Like they're like, Oh no, we only want to make a billion dollars every movie. We only want to make, you know, comic book movies and star Wars and fast and the furious. Well, then you and get if you really low budget else, indie movies. So there's no in between. <clears throat> Yeah, you go to Netflix or A24. Yeah. I mean, it's. I've heard people say, like, The Godfather probably wouldn't be made as a film. But certainly at a Hollywood studio, it would be a HBO or Netflix miniseries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to get anything made that doesn't have, like, a previously existing audience these days. Because that's right. harder to sell. They don't like original stuff because they like stuff that is easy to sell. That Star Wars or a Marvel series or you know X Men or something like that. There's already a pre-existing fan base. Um, 
Right. But also, well, you know, directors could... don't have the pull that they did in the 60s. Like, the people he's talking about, like, um, John Cassavetes or Bergman or stuff like that. I mean, pretty much the only, like, big-name directors Director. are people over 50. Except for Jordan yeah. Peele, maybe. He might be, like, the only one. Yeah. And, I mean, he admits that, you know, with Get Out and Us, he made them for very little money compared to other movies so that he could have creative freedom. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, the big thing in Scorsese's thing is that Fellini became <clears throat> not a genre to himself the way that like Hitchcock became a genre, but was almost to the same level that if Fellini was attached to something, it was an event. It got to the point where Fellini's Casanova or Fellini's Satyricon, like his name was a part of the the title of the movie. So, I mean, is Christopher Nolan the only sort of person you think who has that sort of draw, like Christopher Nolan's Tenet? Maybe, maybe yeah, Tarantino? I, mean, I think Spielberg still does, but I, I just, I, I mean, what's crazy too is that uh, some of my favorite living directors, it's like Mortensen was saying this about Cronenberg, he can't get movies made mm-hmm. because his last two did very bad, bad, you know, they did really poorly at the box office. And, you know, Lynch has not made a film a theatrical film uh, since Inland Empire 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of my favorite directors that they haven't made a film at Christopher Guest mm-hmm. hasn't made a film in a while. And I mean, I don't know if some of them are not necessarily trying, but a lot of them are trying to make films and they cannot get the money easily. It's mm-hmm. just sad to me. But um, anyway, uh, we could talk about this forever, but let's get to see other news. But yeah, um, I very we- recommend people check out that. It's on Harper's and it's called Il Maestro. And it's a very, very good essay by Martin Scorsese. Yes. Um, another really wonderful article was in The Hollywood Reporter about Shelley Duvall. The title is Searching for Shelley Duvall, the Reclusive Icon on Fleeing Hollywood and the Scars of Making the Shining. So Shelley Duvall is a wonderful actress who is mo- probably most famous for playing the wife in The Shining. Mm-hmm. She was in uh, her first like five, six films in a row were with Robert Altman. Mm-hmm. She was in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Nashville thieves like us and she played uh, olive oil and popeye when mm-hmm. she was born three women play. right yeah three women who uh she won best actress at Cannes for that she mm-hmm. was in terry gilliam's time bandits she was in the original tim burton short of frank and weenie um really wonderful choices as an actress but she hasn't been in a movie in about 20 years mm-hmm. and the only thing that people really have seen her in in recent years uh a few years ago about five years ago the Fuck you, Dr. Phil. Uh, he did this <laughs> interview with her where he just exploited her and made her look crazy. And uh. she was saying things like Robin Williams was still alive and was a shapeshifter. And there was like things growing in her arm and just made her look like she was totally nuts. And I think she certainly has some mental issues. But this interviewer went out and tried to get a decent, uh, honest story about her. And it seems she's still very reclusive and she really does not uh, – she's not in the spotlight anymore. But she seems to be having uh, a decent life and she has a small community of people that look out for her. They said that a few years ago. They went to uh, – they had a birthday party for her at Red Lobster and a guy flew all the way from Australia <laughs> to come to the party. And it was based on her TV series she did on Showtime Fairy Tale Theater. And people were, uh, you know, have questioned, you know, whether uh, Kubrick, like, was too abusive and demanding in The Shining. And she said that, oh, it was a tough shoot, but she seems to be completely happy that she made the movie. She seemed, you know, she admits that it was really tough and draining, Mm -hmm. but that, 
it was it was worth it because it was such a great film. Mm-hmm. And the interview uh, uh, also interviewed people like Angelica Houston, who was dating Jack Nicholson at the time, and mm-hmm. she was kind of kind of saying, "Yeah, I, I think Kubrick pushed her a little bit too much, and he was a little bit too, you know, not necessarily like me too. I mean, maybe in the sense of like the way Josh Whedon is being talked about today about being, you know, cruel and." Uh, going too far, but not in any kind of like physically or sexually abusive way, but mm-hmm. just that he could be kind of a dick, I guess. But uh, in the way directors, uh, yeah. I think, used to be <laughs> very demanding and sort of right. treating actors like, like they're, <clears throat> you know, whipping horses or mules or something like that. Yeah, I remember Roman Plansky one time uh, was on the set of Chinatown and uh, Faye Dunaway was asking something about her characters and motivation. And he just said to her, your fucking salary is your motivation. Read the lines. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Shelley Duvall, I adore her. And, um, if, have you ever seen the TV series Fairytale Theater? Mm-mm. You know about that? Mm-mm. It's an amazing series. So it was on Showtime in the eighties and she got like the greatest living actors to be in it. So for example, uh, Rapunzel, not all of them starred her, a few of them, but Rapunzel starred her. Jeff Bridges plays her husband and Gina Rollins plays the witch. Oh wow. And you had three little pigs with. Uh, Billy Crystal and Fred Willard is two of the pigs, <laughs> and Jeff Goldblum is the big bad wolf. Oh, that's excellent. You had, uh, you had Mick Jagger and Barbara Hershey in The Nightingale. You had, um, oh, I mean, they were crazy. They Like, the one with Beauty and the Beast starred Klaus Kinski as the Beast, Susan Sarandon, Angelica Houston, Matthew Broderick. Oh, wow. And there was one uh, with Rip Van Winkle that was Harry Dean Stanton. It was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Huh. There's one of Aladdin that was an early uh, directorial effort by Tim Burton that stars Leonard Nimoy. And these are all just and, fairy tales uh, that they're making for I know. TV. They're like 45, 50 minute episodes. Yeah. And they're like really handmade. And they're like the Rip Van Winkle, like the ship is at sea and it's just a little toy uh, on a blanket. It's huh. just like purposely like really handcrafted. Uh-huh. And the, oh, I, I adored that show growing up. I mean, I could keep going on and on. Like amazing. Like a lot of actors that worked with. Altman, I mean, crazy, amazing cast uh, and some interesting directors. But anyway, she, you should if people have never seen Fairytale Theater, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, see, Eric Idle from Monty Python wrote and directed one of them. Yeah, he was he played the Pied Piper of Hamilton, and he uh, the Tale of the Frog Prince uh, was uh, Robin Williams and Terry Garr. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, they're I mean, it's just great. I mean, I could go on and on, but uh, I love that Hansel and Gretel had Joan Collins as the witch. <laughs> Um, but anyway, uh, love Shelley Duvall. Fuck Dr. Phil. Horrible. Yeah. I mean, it's just, there's some people that it's just like, like, why do, why does anyone watch Dr. Phil or Wendy Williams? It's just like, it's just like, why do these people even have TV shows? <laughs> you need time to fill during the day. <laughs> yeah. You fill an hour long um, block on network television from three to four. Right. Well, um, I want to go through a few deaths that have happened so far this year. We've had some really giant uh, deaths in the film industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to uh, list a few, and we can talk just a little bit about each of them. So Michael Apted passed away at 79, uh, a few weeks before turning 80. He was uh, a very eclectic director, um, mm-hmm. probably best known for his 7-Up documentary series where very he didn't actually direct the first one but all the se- uh, follow-up films he did every seven years they followed these british kids and they did about seven of them seven or eight of them 
and it's supposed to be this just landmark documentary. It's basically like Boyhood, but as a documentary. And An even longer span. I know. The first one was in like the mid-60s. Uh-huh. Uh, directed Cole Miner's Daughter, which Sissy Spacek won Best Actress for, uh-huh. for playing Loretta Lynn. Directed a James Bond movie. Uh, directed Enough with Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> Very uh, uh, big range I remember of that movies. movie. I didn't know Michael Apted yeah. directed that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 79. Um, controversial, certainly music producer, Phil Spector died at 81. Mm-hmm. Um, he is considered like one of the great music producers, but he was also, uh, a murderer. incarcerated. Yeah. Incarcerated <laughs> for murder. Um, I highly recommend, did you ever see the HBO movie that David Mamet wrote and directed with Al Pacino playing him? No, Helen I didn't. Mirren? Yeah. Uh, you get to see Al Pacino with the giant, crazy you know, hair that he had in court one. Uh, mm-hmm. I've know, seen those pictures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Phil Spector, great artist, questionable human being. Yes. Um, there are two legendary media figures, both named Larry that passed away in uh, recent weeks. Larry King, legendary talk show host died at 87 and hustler creator, uh, Larry Flint died at 78. Um, mm-hmm. I'll say Larry Flint uh, was the subject of a really amazing biopic that came out in the 90s, The People vs. Larry Flint, film directed by Milos Forman and starring Woody Harrelson as Larry Flint. Mm-hmm. He uh, had an assassination attempt decades ago, and it confined him to a wheelchair the rest of his life. Um, people can question, you know, the morality and ethics of what he printed but the cultural worth of hustler hustler (laughs) yeah but he was uh in a way a first amendment hero uh for at least an advocate (laughs) yeah he he went all the way to the supreme court with this infamous cartoon in one of the hustler there was this fake advertisement in one of his hustler magazines where the televangelist jerry falwell he was um, you know, insinuating that he was having sex with his own mother, or he lost his virginity, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And they and Flint won because they ruled that it's satire, and that because Jerry Falwell was a public figure, mm-hmm. that it uh, that it should be allowed. And so, um, you know, Hustler was certainly like the. Uh, it's like not Playboy. Playboy mm-hmm. was you know had some respectability. They had like and, interviews with Stanley Kubrick and stuff. <laughs> Right. And um, Hustler was certainly like the truck driver porn magazine. But after the stuff that came out about Jerry Falwell Jr., it's, uh, you know, who knows what his dad was doing. Have you ever seen The People vs. Larry Flint? I've seen parts of it on TV. I have never seen the whole thing. You really should. It's like, I think, one of the underrated films of the 90s. I mean, it got really good reviews. It was nominated (laughs) for a bunch of Oscars, but it's really good. Um, A few more. Uh, Bruce Kirby character actor who is the father of bruno kirby who died tragically young bruno kirby you know is in godfather part two and when harry met city slickers yeah and uh bruce kirby uh lo- longtime character actor he was 95 was in shows like columbo la law um and then some really big ones cloris leachman died mm-hmm. 94 uh best known for being on the mary tyler moore show and its spinoff phyllis Mel Brooks films mm-hmm. such as Young Frankenstein and High Anxiety, um, you know, was last in a picture ton show. Of yeah, Oscar-winning performance for Best Supporting Actress was on every TV show in the fifties. Malcolm and in 60s. the Middle in the or nineties and two thousands. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, she was in a show more recently, Raising Hope. She's in the number one box office film for like three months in a row because she's in the Crude sequel. Oh. Uh, it keeps getting at number one because no other movies, no other are, movies are out. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, wonderful actress. She could be in dramatic films like Last Picture Show. She could be in comedies like the Mel Brooks films and Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, big loss. 94, though. A lot of these people had to be, uh, you know, lived a long time and worked right up to the end. Mm -hmm. um, Cicely Tyson died at 96, right as her memoir was published. Like, she had her memoir come out, and then she died at 96. Uh, legendary, groundbreaking, pioneering Hollywood actress who famously only took roles that she felt were you know, morally and, you know, you know, that contributed to the betterment of the portrayals of African-Americans. She was uh, nominated for Best Actress for the film Sounder. She was really famous for being in the TV movie, the autobiography the, of Miss Jane Pittman. She was most recently in uh, How to Get Away with Murder, playing Viola Davis's mother. Hmm. Um, and she was married to Miles Davis um, for many years and was had a tumultuous relationship with him because of his drug use. And, <laughs> as, as everyone's uh, relationships with Miles Davis probably were. <laughs> right. But uh, she did a number of interviews just days before she died, um, but she lived to be 96. Uh, she got an honorary Oscar a few years ago. Um, another legendary actor who died in his 90s, Christopher Plummer. Mm -hmm. Oscar-winning actor. When he won his Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for Beginners, he was the oldest Oscar winner for uh, an acting in a competitive category. Mm -hmm. And when he was nominated for All the Money in the World, taking over for Kevin Spacey in the Ridley Scott film, he became the oldest competitive Oscar nominee. Mm -hmm. um, what film is he best known for? Probably Sound of Music, even today. Oh, yeah. Which famously he really did not particularly like. He loves Julie Andrews mm -hmm. and he thinks that the film has, you know, wonderful music and he thinks it's beautiful uh, photography. Wonderful. Yeah. I unabashedly love the sound of music. But, I think um, it's excellent. Robert Wise is an incredible director. Yeah. Um, a number of uh, just some of the movies, uh, I pulled out a, a stack of the movies and posted an Instagram video. Um, he was in. Uh, Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys. He was in Terrence Malick's The New World. He was mm -hmm. in Knives Out recently, one mm -hmm. of his last films. He was in uh, Spike Lee's films Malcolm X and Inside Man. Oh, I mean, he, he did a lot of films, and he even seemed to have a better career in the last few decades of his life. Yeah, I mean, it was a really a good of old man actor. Oh, yeah. He's, <laughs> um, you know, he was in... Um, just just so many movies it's hard it's it, you know he, he there were a lot that he he did a lot of stage work early in his career i think that certainly the sound of music made him a notable star mm -hmm. but it wasn't really until his 70s and 80s that he got some of his greatest roles um another actor who died in his 90s uh character actor hal holbrook Mm -hmm. who was an Emmy and Tony winning actor who was probably best known for playing Mark Twain for decades. And he also was nominated for best supporting actor um, about uh, 14 years was ago. Was that Into so the Wild? The, yeah, the Sean Penn film. Mm -hmm. And um, he was married to Dixie Carter. Um, also played and, Deep Throat in All the President's Men. Right. Yep. 
and he was someone who died um, a few weeks before his death was announced. He actually died before there was this string of deaths with Cloris Leachman and Cicely Tyson and Larry King. And um, his death wasn't announced until like two or weeks later or so. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a music death. Mary Wilson, one of the founding members of the Supremes, died at 76. And um, Diana Ross. Yeah. There was, yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, she's still alive. Yeah. Mary Wilson passed away. Yeah. Um, she wasn't the Supreme, so I'm not wrong. <laughs> right, right. That's correct. Um, so is there any Who other did Hal Holbrook play Mark here? Twain? Or what did Mark, he play Mark Twain on? I'm not familiar with that. Well, he was on Broad, he was in Broadway and there was it filmed. Uh, I don't think there was like a theatrical film, but it was like on PBS or something. Okay. They had done like a, 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 a filming of his performance. He famously did it when he was pretty young and he was like an old age makeup. And then he got to the point where he was like really old. And he <laughs> he was didn't need the makeup anymore. <laughs> right. I right. think of him uh, but, from The Firm. Have you ever seen that? Tom Cruise? No, this Tom Cruise. Right? Uh-huh. Well, who directed that? Was it a... I think it was Sidney Pollack. Yeah, uh, if I'm not well, mistaken, what, what, in the outrageous cast. It's got like Gene Hackman, yeah. uh, Tom Cruise, Hal Holbrook, a lot of other actors. Right, Wilfred are, Brimley. Uh, some of these actors that some of these actors I mentioned are there other films of theirs that, st- that stand out to you? I mentioned a number, but well, I was just trying to like think of other Christopher Nolan movies where he's young that I can like think of off the top of my head. It's really just I'm sure there are others, but. Sound of Music is one that obviously stands out. I'm just thinking of like other because all of the movies you think of him being in are when he's like older, like uh, Inside right. Man, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Knives Out, Insider, he's in Up. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Waterloo. That's the one I was thinking of. The Waterloo from 1970. He plays Wellington, but nobody's seen that. You can watch the whole thing on on YouTube. <laughs> it's it's not bad actually. Is it one of those like three hour old epics you love? Um, it's actually, it's actually very controversial, not controversial, but the Waterloo is the reason Stanley Kubrick didn't get to make his Napoleon movie because it was a disaster at the box office. And there was like an original cut of Waterloo that was like three and a half hours, but they cut it down to like a hundred minutes and like no one understood what was happening in the movie. So you actually have on YouTube have a bunch of like fan edits where people like put in, um, (laughs) <laughs> you know like paintings and stuff like that that represent the action or like descriptions of what the action would be so the best versions you can find of waterloo are like these sort of weird fan edits on youtube but uh, i wish it was three and a half hours <laughs> i wish it was one of those epics <laughs> let me mention a few more um this is not necessarily one of his most famous films but i love the pink panther films and he's uh in the one that uh almost a decade after the last one with Peter Sellers, mm-hmm. they returned uh, with the return of the pink Panther. And one movie I've always wanted to see that I've heard is excellent. Have you ever seen uh, John Houston's the man who would be King where he yes. plays Richard Kipling? Yes. I actually just yeah. bought that on Blu-ray. That is an yeah. epic, epic movie. Michael Caine, uh, Sean Connery about uh, two British soldiers who go want to be uh, rulers in backwater afghanistan in the 1800s it's very very fun adventure movie directed by john houston um yeah um he also did a movie in 1979 played sherlock holmes in a movie called murder by decree which i've heard is one of the best film versions of sherlock holmes and also i just forgot about this one a great movie ever see michael mann's the insider Mm -hmm. played uh mike wallace 
uh, mm-hmm. the you know the news broadcaster, and uh, I mean, he was in a, a beautiful mind. I mean, we could go on and on. So many great films. It, just one of those actors that you don't think of giving great performance because he was just so reliable. Yes, just so good. A natural. He, just, he almost like underrated. He's like one of those like uh, Spencer Tracy in a way. He just he's mm-hmm. just like oh well, he's great. He's it's Christopher Plummer. Like you don't even have to. Like you don't even consider it like, oh, he's giving a great performance. It's like, oh, yeah, it's Christopher Plummer. He's going to be great. It also adds a sort of gravitas to any movie he's in. <laughs> I really liked right. him in uh, The Last Station. He played Tolstoy. That was from 2009. I thought he was really good in that. Crazy. That was his first nomination ever. That is crazy because he was like 80 <laughs> when that movie came out. Right. But um, anyway, so – we wanted to recommend – was there any other news you wanted before we just wanted to recommend a few movies that we had seen recently? Um, not, No, not really. I think you covered pretty extensive goings-on. Um, right. There's just sort of like you know release dates for stuff that were supposed to come out last year, like The Green Knight got a new release date. I'm hesitant or you know questioning whether any of these are actually going to come out in theaters. Um, but you know, yeah, this whole thing at time. I, everyone it, keeps like pushing it back to like November, December. Like movies will be full then. You know, theaters will be full. It's like, well, let's see. Yeah, Fauci said in an interview recently that he thinks that it will be, we'll be still wearing masks next year. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we just like started wearing masks forever. <laughs> right. So we're, we're going to go through and recommend a few movies that we've seen so far this year. So why don't you, Carter, recommend a movie? Well, these are all movies that I had not seen before I watched them. They've all been in the last two and a half months or so. Um, these will all be available to rent on stuff like YouTube and Amazon Prime. I don't think any of them are streaming anywhere. But um, if you're willing to spend $2 on YouTube or Amazon, you'll be able to rent a very, very good movie. The first one is uh, Running on Empty, which is a movie I've been wanting to see for a long time because it was on uh, – there was a list of uh, movies Akira Kurosawa put out where it was like he could only recommend one movie from each director. And the one he did for Sidney Lumet was Running on Empty. So I was like, hmm, that must be pretty good. And it's a, it's a River Phoenix movie, and I had never seen – a movie where he had been the lead role. The thing I was most familiar with him is playing young Indiana Jones from The Last Crusade in the sort of prologue to that movie. So this was the first movie where I'd seen him in a real lead role. And uh, he has a very big reputation as one of those stars, like a James Dean who died young and had so much promise. Um, but that was really something I'd only like heard. It's not something I had experienced for myself. And I don't know if you can call something a revelation if it came out 30 years ago and the actor who did this revelatory role died almost 30 years ago, but um, Running on Empty is like truly one of the great film acting performances I've ever seen from River Phoenix. Like, Just a complete natural in front of the camera. It's like almost hard to believe he's so good in some of the scenes. And the whole sort of movie is built around his performance in a way that um, you don't see in a whole lot of movies because... Um, in most situations, you know, it's about, like, the plot or something like that. But you can sort of tell that, like, this whole movie is just built around this incredible central performance for River Phoenix. And uh, it's about a family who is on the run after the parents um, bombed a napalm manufacturing facility. And they expected, like, no one to be in the building. But there was a janitor who wasn't supposed to be there. And they blind him in the process. So they're wanted for, uh, uh, like, attempted murder as well as... 
blowing up a napalm facility. So, like, this family's just constantly on the run. They have no identities or shifting identities, and they move from place to place. And River Phoenix plays this piano prodigy who, like, all the time he's just practicing piano on, like, a wood keyboard. And uh, it's sort of just about him. Uh, he's, like, 17, 18 at the time and deciding whether he wants to continue this life on the run with his parents or to create a new life for himself uh, where he can, you know, be a real person and have a real identity and pursue his dreams. But it it completely blew me away. This was not something I expected to take me like it did, but it's by the end of it, I was like so invested. I was like, nothing better happened to River Phoenix in this movie because it would just make me so sad. <laughs> the way his real life turned out, if this movie doesn't happen, I'm just going to be crushed. So actually it was a little bit bittersweet because I did get very sad about River Phoenix after I saw the movie, like, God damn, like he really would have been something special. But at least we have movies like Running on Empty, and uh, I haven't seen My Private I uh, Idaho yet, but uh, that's when he's really supposed to be a special performance in. So I'm looking forward to seeing more River Phoenix movies, and um, at least we have his little brother, <laughs> Joaquin, uh, who's still making really good movies. But this is one you haven't seen, right, Jonathan? No, I've seen My Own Private Idaho. Uh, yeah, he was only 23 when he died. Interesting, mm -hmm. died the same exact day as Federico Fellini. Oh, my God. But, um, yeah, I, he's also in Stand By Me. Yes. When he's like, uh, that's which a child seen. actor performance. Yeah, I've never seen Stand By Me. I need to. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, it's interesting. Sidney Lumet's career is really interesting because we remember – 12 Angry Men, Serpico, mm -hmm. Dog Day Afternoon. But if you look at his career, he was like Woody Allen. He made like a movie a year almost. Oh, and yeah. Like half of them we don't remember. Like yes. you look at them <laughs> and like like he'll have like Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon. And then there's like some random movie that did not get good reviews. Equus. You know. <laughs> Prince well, of no, the that City. That was a good one. That, those are, but those are good ones. Yeah, I know. Like The Verdict is a really good movie. It's just not one many people see these days no but i mean i'm talking about like, well i mean the one that's a, a really interesting film that he directed that is not entirely successful is the whiz like mm -hmm. he, that he directed that's the michael yeah, jackson no, but I mean, no but it's like you know he uh, you know he did a string of serpico and then a movie called love and molly uh -huh. no one's ever heard of that murder on the orient express dog the Afternoon i love that Network. movie <laughs> murder yeah. on the orient express uh yeah, but I mean, he did a movie called Daniel. Just tell me what you want. Mm -hmm. uh, Power. Trap. You know, a lot of these movies. Anyway, uh, he's a wonderful director. Um, I think when we did the episode of the best last films. Yeah, you mentioned uh, uh, Before the Neville Does You're Dead. Yeah. Yeah, I should see running. Uh, and I mentioned him for the first MP? movie, 12 Angry Men. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, yeah, running on empty was the name of that one. Yeah, is that it's just available to rent yes. at the various renting places? Okay, yes, at the various renting places. Um, yes, uh, <laughs> one movie I saw. So when I teach my film classes, even if it's not a film I'm specifically teaching, uh, or even the director of the you know film I'm doing, I like to just go back and fill in gaps. So I did Iranian cinema in my international film class, and I had seen two films by Chafar Pahani, who is famous infamous tragically for being uh arrested about 11 years ago in his home country of iran and banned from making 12 films for 20 years and since then he has directed four feature films the first being titled this is not a film 
which he shot entirely in his apartment on camcorders and on iPhones, and he snuck it out in a flash drive in a cake. But I had never seen any of the films he had directed before his arrest, and so I watched his directorial debut, The White Balloon, which is written by Abbas Karastami, the great director of films like Close Up, Taste of Cherry, and Certified Copy. And this film is 85 minutes. It came out in 1995. And the premise of the movie is that a seven-year-old girl uh, gets money from her mother. She begs her for money to go buy a pet goldfish. And in real time, you see her leave the house and go buy that goldfish. That's the premise. But this movie... Her, that 85 minutes done in real time because it's the uh, it's almost the new year and so you hear throughout the film radio announcements about how soon it is to the new year hmm. it is you you get the breadth of the human experience it is such a beautiful humane and and it's weird to say this but not in like it's a thriller but it's just gripping it's just absolutely engaging and I just, it was just a wonderful film. I remember one film critic was talking about a film once and he said that's, it's a, he watched a movie and he said that it made him feel like he wanted to be a better person after mm -hmm. watching it. It's just this small slice of life film. And there's just, I, I, it doesn't sound exciting, but it's just a wonderful film. And you see the life through this little girl's eyes. You see her, you know, she loses the money. It falls down in the storm drain in front of a store and her, you know, efforts to get the money back and her, all the dealing she has to do to get the goldfish. It's just such a wonderful film. It's on the Criterion channel. I highly recommend it. It's, it's, it's just a wonderful film. It's directed by Jafar Pahani, written by Abbas Karastami, came out in 1995, The White Balloon. Have you ever seen any films by this director? Mm -mm. Have you ever seen any films by Karastami? No, <laughs> it's one of those ones oh. that it's like a big gap for me. One of my top 10 films of the 90s is Certified Copy, directed mm -hmm. by Abbas Karastami. And I taught that in my international film class. Uh, you absolutely need to see Close Up if you've never seen it. Brilliant film. Uh, but yeah, I, I highly recommend The White Balloon. That was one I saw earlier this month. He uh, has a lot of uh, movies on the Criterion collection, right? Karastami, yeah. that is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, both of the directors do. Um, also, this is not a film is really incredible. It's just the guy in his apartment talking about making or not being able to make a movie. And it's like really political without being overtly, you know, political. It's just a really, uh, yeah. He, he, I mean, not just because, oh, you know, he suffered and he's been, you know, banned for making films like we should, you know, honor him. But like he's just yes, but he's just a really good filmmaker, too. Yeah. So I recommend The White Balloon. And I would guess that's sort of about, like, sort of needing to make movies. This is not a film, that sort of thing. This was before his arrest. No, this I mean the ones after movie. the arrest, though. <laughs> I know you're talking about yeah. one that you saw before his arrest. Right, yeah. This Well, this is not a film. It's certainly about, you know, it's like a Brechtian mm -hmm. look at, you know, how, you know, it's like there's scenes where he's, like, planning in his apartment like this is where the set's going to be and he like breaks down and almost cries because it's like the absurdity and the the heartbreak of him wanting to make art and he's stuck in this apartment i mean he wasn't part of the arrest he was under house arrest he couldn't leave his apartment um but uh so uh, i i recommend uh seeing the films of jafar bahani mm -hmm. and the one i his direct total debut is a great one to start with the white balloon uh 
So the next one I am going to recommend is available on Amazon Prime. How about that? There's another independent, well, I don't think uh, <laughs> Running on Two is actually independent, but this is an independent movie from the 1980s directed by Gus Van Sant, who I think is best known for Goodwill Hunting. Um, but just a very like big milk. figure. Yeah. Milk, exactly. A very big figure in the independent American independent uh, cinema scene in the 90s and 80s. Psycho. Um, Psycho. <laughs> the shot-for-shot shot remake of Psycho. Um, I, honestly, that's probably one of the most famous thing, things he's most famous for, along with Goodwill Hunting. And oh, milk. It definitely yeah, is. <laughs> I don't yeah. think many people know of Elephant um, or yeah. Jerry. Uh, yeah. But Drugstore Cowboy, I, was it his first movie? I can't remember. I'm looking it up now. It was definitely one of his. No, no it's not it, his first movie. It, no, I think it's his third. He did one called the movie called Mount Noche, and then he did My Own Private Idaho. Mm-hmm. But this is one that was a sort of one of the original uh, uh, festival circuit big successes of independent cinema. It came out the same year as Sex, Lies, and Videotapes. Oh, I, no, it's his second, it's his second film. Uh, My Own Private Idaho was uh, his third film. Okay. Go ahead. So it stars Matt Dillon as a uh, drug addict, and he has a little crew in Portland, Oregon, uh, and they just sort of <laughs> knock over drugstores and hospitals. And uh, follows their sort of everyday life, um, this little sort of gang of drug addicts who are just sort of living day to day, trying to get their next fix. And it is incredibly stylishly done. Um, like Gus Van Sant, is a, he's just like a br- absolute master of the form. And uh, you really get a sense of uh, just how comfortable he is with like framing scenes and blocking and stuff like that like you get some really good stuff inside of houses where characters are moving from one room to the other and it's got a really really good soundtrack and um it's just a really sort of vibrant movie about a very sad topic to a certain extent like there is there's tragedy that happens in the movie and um some stuff that uh will not be easy for a squeamish audience member to experience but matt Dillon and the central role is outstanding he puts on like a movie star performance and um he was a really promising actor in the 80s i read the roger ebert uh review it might not have been for this one but it was around a time of a matt Dillon movie and he was like matt Dillon is the only movie star in hollywood <laughs> so i don't think we would think of matt Dillon's career in the same way we'd think of um like a sean penn or someone like that but he was very much like at the top of the industry uh in the by the time drugstore cowboy came out and he is really exceptional in this movie um it's also got a really interesting performance by William S. Burroughs, the novelist uh, who wrote uh, Naked Lunch. He appears as like a drug addict priest near the end of the movie and is actually really, really good in it. So it was sort of like shocking to be like, oh my God, that's William Burroughs just in a movie. Um, but this is on Amazon Prime, like I mentioned. I really recommend this. This is a just a great example of sort of independent American cinema from the late 80s and how sort of vibrant uh, and just like full of like energy that whole movement was uh, with people like uh, Gus Van Sant and Steven Soderbergh and then Tarantino to follow after that. Um, also, uh, what's his name? Uh, who did uh, Days of Confused? Name is passing me right Richard now. Richard Linklater. Richard Linklater, yeah. It's of that sort of era. and uh, I feel like I should see more movies from that. This was the first time I'd seen like an early Gus Van Sant movie. Uh, my own Private Idaho, one you mentioned, one with River Phoenix is one I definitely want to see next because it combines early Gus Van Sant with River Phoenix so I'm looking forward to seeing that someday um but yeah, yeah. Drugstore Cowboys on Amazon Prime have you seen this yes it's a really good film uh some of the other casts include Kelly Lynch mm-hmm. 
Heather Graham, James Remar, Grace Zabrinsky, who's, uh, you know, is in Twin Peaks and Lynch mm -hmm. work. Uh, B. Richards, who is in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Oscar-nominated mm -hmm. actress. Yeah, James Remar playing a cop. But like when I saw that James Remar was in this movie, I was like, oh, he must be another drug addict. <laughs> I was like, nope, he's a policeman. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really wonderful film. Uh, tough film, gritty film. I mean, when yes. you said Matt Dillon gives like a movie star performance, he does like it's a real breakthrough role, but it's also like very gritty and down yes. earth and real, not like showy no, movie star exactly. performance. Yeah. Um, okay, a movie, a real classic that I had never seen before. Uh, last week on Valentine's Day, actually, uh, I saw a Brief Encounter for the first time, mm -hmm. which is another film that's just under 90 minutes. It's David Lean's 1945 romantic drama based on a one act play by Noel Coward. And it's a very simple, sparse, just beautiful, heartbreaking romantic drama about these two people they're both married a man and a woman and they meet at a train station and they carry on this affair that is not entirely you know we don't know exactly how far it goes we yes. only see uh, bits and pieces of it but it's i mean they do kiss on screen in the film uh but it's just it's like 86 minutes long and we see the this blossoming of a love affair and they both realize that they really shouldn't do this, but they desperately want to run off with each other and mm -hmm. live their whole life together. And it's just one of the most deeply romantic films where you don't get to see too much. It's yeah. just, it's, it's so much about the longing and the wish and the, the it, how much of love is what you you know grasping for and the longing and not necessarily getting it and mm -hmm. so it's certainly a bittersweet heartbreaking film but it's so beautifully done and what's interesting is this is a, i haven't seen I, I i haven't seen any of david lean's non-epic films i've seen bridge on the river quiet i've mm -hmm. seen lawrence of arabia but uh the, it's it's really interesting seeing him do an 86 minute black and white little romantic drama that's based on a one act play. Like it's very contained. It's, yes. You know, there's supporting characters, but it's largely these two main uh, actors and it's just such a, a beautifully shot movie. It's also, uh, it would be a great example of if you're going to teach a class on play adaptations to film, mm -hmm. because it, it it's contained, but it's very cinematic. Like the way he uses the camera and lighting, it's, it's a very, it, it's like a real work of cinema. And uh, the BFI did a list at the turn of the century of the 100 best British films of all time. And it was number two, mm -hmm. uh, only uh, surpassed by the third man. So that was a classic. I, uh, checked off uh, on Valentine's Day. You've seen it before, right? Yeah, it's like the ultimate stiff upper lip English movie of containing your emotions and <laughs> playing your role and not acting out and doing something that would be out of the ordinary. But you mentioned it's a really good uh, example of an adaptation of a play. It makes really good use of like changes of settings. It's like big settings for like a movie theater and then a restaurant and a train station where they meet a lot. But then it makes really good use of, like, they have this drive out into the country and just how different that is to their usual meetup place, which is this train station. But it's also got a really interesting structure in that it starts off with their last meeting where they, like, can't say to each other what they want to say and you don't really realize how heartbreaking it is until the end of the movie. Um, 
and it's sort of presented as her like telling her husband the story, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Or her like right. deciding yeah. whether to tell him. Right. Almost the whole film is a yeah, it's really I remember in uh, we took our, the class at NYU Simon's class where he talked a lot about the structure of films and the use of narration. Mm-hmm. Like the whole film almost is her imagining her telling her husband mm-hmm. what she's been doing. And so almost the whole film is a flashback that is an imaginary narration Confession. of her telling her husband. Yeah, <laughs> right. So it's a really interesting like narrative structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really good Trevor Howard performance you know. also as the male lead. Right. Who yeah. people might it's know very, from uh, Lawrence of Arabia yeah. and Gandhi and uh, um, The Third Man is a big one he was in. Yeah, so I guess he was in the top two films on the BFI list. Was The Third Man also um, very high on that? Or Lawrence of Arabia? One. Third Man is number one. How about that? Yeah, David Lean had four films in the top 11. <laughs> he is like very much the man of British cinema, so that's not surprising. Right. So um, it's on the Criterion channel that's on HBO Max. A number of Criterion films are on uh, HBO Max. So um, that's, uh, I mean, it might be odd in a way to watch that on Valentine's Day because it's kind of a, you know, a, a tragic. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, unrequited you know, love. love. Well, not unrequited, right. but unacted on <laughs> love. Right. Yeah. But it is one of the great romantic films of all time. Yes. So uh, Brief Encounter is a wonderful film. So. I recommend that. What's so the, the last one I am going to mention is available to watch on Hulu, if you have it. It is a 1947 film noir starring Robert Mitchum and Kirk Douglas. It is Out of the Past, which uh, some people have described as like the ultimate film noir, um, directed by Jacques Tourneur. How do you pronounce that? Tourneur? Jacques, yeah, Jacques Tourneur. <laughs> it did Cat People and some other movies. Um, this also had a really interesting plot structure and sort of starting off in media rest and then we get a flashback and then in the middle of the movie we catch up to where we started and then we get the rest of it. Um, but really, really good film fatale played by Jane Greer. Um, <laughs> I don't, it just like screams film noir when you're watching this movie and Robert Mitchum is sort of like the, for me, like the ultimate film noir actor. Like he's a guy, even when he's playing a good guy, you're like, this guy could do some really messed up stuff. <laughs> so I, I always get the the sense with Robert Richmond that underneath he's going to do something extremely violent. And then uh, you get Kirk Douglas, the sort of like urbane, uh, suave gambler who uh, is the guy who's pulling all the strings in the background. And it just works really well as a mystery. Like, and also a lot of film noirs like have very promising premises, but just like fall apart in the last half hour. But this one is really excellent the whole way through. Um, I don't know. It's There's not much the first to say about it. It's probably the earliest Kirk Douglas film I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, it's really early. Uh, he's not like the star in it, which he obviously by five years and he's in like The Bad and the Beautiful. He's the star in every movie that he's in. Um, but he's very much a supporting role in this one. And really works as a villain. Like he, he's someone you think of as always playing hero parts. Like he's Spartacus for Christ's sake, but he's really good as a villain in this one. Um, and like I mentioned before, Jane Greer, who I haven't seen in too many other movies, but is really exceptional. Um, it's I don't know. Th- like the poster for this movie is awesome. The title is awesome. I was just like, this is just a great film noir. I'm surprised I hadn't seen it until now. Yeah, so I mean, people, you know, it's often put as like one of the five best. You know, it's like a, a quintessential film noir. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I've seen it 
probably 15 years ago. I don't remember it too well, but I remember thinking, oh, this is just a really great classic Hollywood movie. And, uh, you know, Robert Mitchum, he's in that category, too, I think, of Spencer Tracy and that just he's always good. Oh, yeah. It's just like (laughs) so effortless. He's just so cool. Um, Yeah, he's you play heroes and villains. Yeah. Cape Fear, Night of the Hunter. Um, I think that uh, I I taught cat people recently in my horror class, uh, which was directed by uh, Jacques Tenor. And also, I highly recommend I Walked with a Zombie, which is probably the best of the Val Luton films. Um, He was produced those horror movies. Um, Yeah, he was. uh, uh, Yeah, I haven't seen too many of his movies, but the ones I've seen were really uh, exceptional. So uh, Mm -hmm. those movies are really great, too. Uh, so yeah, out of the past, classic, classic film was remade uh, when, as Against All Odds in 1984 with Jeff Bridges and James Woods. I probably won't see that, <laughs> but just know that it yeah. exists. <laughs> well, I will say that probably my favorite. Well, I yeah, without question, my favorite film noir is Double Indemnity, mm-hmm. and that actually was remade in the 80s in a good film, Body Heat. That's actually a good film. Oh, um, not as good. I wouldn't call it, it's definitely it's not a straight up, but it is very much inspired by and hits a lot of the right. plot points. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so I'm gonna end with my last recommendation as a very recent film. It came out just last year, and it got a theatrical release right as the pandemic was hitting. And I didn't see it until early this year, uh, 2021. It's never, rarely, sometimes, always. It's a film written and directed by Eliza Hitman. And the premise of the movie, it's about a teenage girl who finds out that she is pregnant and she lives in a, per, a pretty small town in Pennsylvania. And she finds out that she can't legally get an abortion in her home state of Pennsylvania, which is true in a number of states because mm-hmm. she's not 18 yet without her parental without parental consent and you don't want to tell your parents you got knocked up (laughs) right and she gets with her female cousin who's her best friend and they buy a bus ticket to new york city to go to a planned parenthood and get an abortion and it takes longer than she expects and it's just such a wonderful moving deeply humane movie that is very obvious in its political stance, but it's not at all preachy or, mm-hmm. you know, ra- you know, saying this is what we need. This is what, you know, it just, it shows the, ex- the, what these two girls go through. And it's just in a weird way, I compare it in some ways to midnight cowboy, because you see these people mm. kind of, you know, walking through New York City and they're kind of don't have all the resources they need. You know, mm-hmm. they have a limited amount of money and they're having to deal with something involving sexuality. Mm-hmm. And um, this isn't really a spoiler, but the title of the film is from one of the most powerful scenes I've seen in a movie in recent years where she is in a uh, session with a Planned Parenthood counselor, and she asks her these series of questions and answers she can give her never, rarely, sometimes, always. Mm-hmm. You know, example, you know, how often do you use protection? Have you ever been, you know, abused? Mm-hmm. And the scene goes back and forth between the young woman and the counselor, but at a certain point, the camera just stays 
on the teenager for like four or five minutes in an unbroken shot. Oh, wow. And the way she answers or doesn't answer the questions Mm -hmm. speaks volumes Mm -hmm. and it's heartbreaking and it's just an amazing performance. And she had never acted before. She was a janitor. Oh, wow. They cast her in this movie and it should get nominated for like all the major Oscars. Uh Even though I really shouldn't say that because I haven't seen like four fifths of the films that are going to get nominated. (laughs) But from what I've seen, and certainly it's one that critics adore, it got mm-hmm. nominated for a number of the Spirit Awards. You know, the, uh, the mm-hmm. critics are nominating it for a lot. But it's just so – it's just a movie that makes you realize, you know, whether it's someone actually, you know, becoming pregnant or dealing with abortion. But it just makes you respect women so much, mm-hmm. how much they go through in life. Mm-hmm. And I just found it deeply moving. And it's also an example – it's kind of a weird category, but it's a movie where it's really gripping because you're just watching people do stuff. <laughs> it, the white the white balloons in that category too. It's just like it the the premise of the movie is not all that. It, there's not too much of a plot. It's like the, you know she goes to get the goldfish, she goes to get an abortion. It's like that's the basic premise, mm-hmm. but the the steps they have to go through the the minutia and the bit by bit and the you know the deals they have to make and like well we got to do this to get that mm-hmm. it's so gripping and engaging and uh this movie's on HBO Max it's one of the very best reviewed films of 2020 never rarely sometimes always wonderful wonderful film mm-hmm. very much sounds like it would uh it's a realist movie. It sounds like it's sort of like Italian neorealist which the white balloon also sounded like it was that sort of bend well, what's interesting about Never Really is that it is very like gritty, down to earth, shot on sixteen millimeter. But also, there's these artistic flourishes where mm-hmm. it's kind of a mood piece at times. You see scenes where they're like riding on the subway, you know, for hours to, you know, because they don't have money for a hotel. Like they're mm-hmm. basically hanging around in New York, and there's, you know, they have this giant suitcase that they should not have brought with them because they <laughs> were expecting to be there for one night. Uh-huh. But they they brought this giant suitcase. They're having to lug around New York. Um, but it's just it's it's a really powerful film that, like I said, regardless of your opinion on abortion, it's it's just a very human movie that you know that it's like what a good film that deals with the hot topic political issue is that it humanizes it and it shows the reality of it, mm-hmm. it isn't wagging fingers and making a diatribe about this. It's not propaganda know. or anything. No, it's very obvious what the stance of the filmmakers in the film, you know, is. But it's it's just a really, uh, you know, it, it's 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 a type of movie that, that could actually change people's minds, mm-hmm. you know, because it's so human and deeply felt. So I highly recommend three very different movies, uh, different time periods. And that was available on um, which service? HBO Max, and it's like available a bunch of places. It's it's a recent release. I'm sure it's on like on demand on places, but uh-huh. it's on HBO Max. Well, excellent. So hopefully y'all check out some of those movies. I know not all of them are available on streaming services, but some of them are. <laughs> and if they're not, you can pay two or three dollars. All of them are available to at least rent. Yes, maybe. exactly. But yeah, so that'll that is our latest episode maybe we will watch new releases like nomadland and judas and the black messiah in the next few weeks definitely before the oscars which 
what is the Oscar? This is like April or something this year. It, it's crazy. Like I don't think the announcements are for like three weeks. No, anymore. it's like, just I, so bizarre. Like the ceremony usually is like next weekend or the weekend after that. I know. Strange times. Like, I know. It's like <laughs> it's like it's some of the child actors. If they get nominated, they're going to be like adults by the time yeah. they get nominated. You're like you don't look anything like you were in the movie. Are we sure you're the same person? Um, I know. Yeah. So but that's anyway, some news, yeah. some recommendations. Um, so we will be back with y'all next time, hopefully after seeing, uh, some hopefully good recent releases like Nomadland. I have very high expectations for Nomadland. <laughs> probably yeah, it's in select theaters and in, on Hulu right now. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, thank yeah. you for listening. We'll be back with you guys next time.